Chapter Seven of Miss Frances Baird, Detective, by Reginald Wright Kaufman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A mysterious disappearance. Close the door," said Kemp. I obeyed and, shivering in every limb, returned and almost tottered over to the bed. "Don't do that," my companion whispered. "You see, it hasn't been touched tonight since the maid turned back the covers, and we mustn't disturb a thing." here's my flask take a drink if you have to and then sit down there by the desk again i followed his commands and the liquor slowly producing its required effect began once more to look about me rarely i suppose has there been such a scene and certainly i at least have never taken part in its equal the happy red light from the lamp shone over everything over the plain little bedroom the figure of kemp in his evening clothes myself in a ball-gown and the body of the dead man, also clad in conventional attire, in the armchair. The flow from the yawning crimson wound in the young fellow's throat had dyed his clothes to the waist, and descended into a large dark pool on the floor. The loose head was lolling grotesquely to one side, the half-opened eyes were staring and glassy, and in one hand, resting on the lap, was limply held an open, large clasp-knife. Kemp looked quickly about him. No signs of a fight, he said laconically, and then proceeded to make a rapid but careful survey of the body. Heads nearly cut off, he commented. Everything worth cutting severed, I should say. Not a thing missed. How are the windows? I went to them and tried them. A warm night and both of them locked, I said. And that note on the desk, what does it say? But there I protested. Have we a right? I asked. This isn't our case, Mr. Kemp. "'Not our case, eh? Well, you just wait till you hear what the chief says, and you'll wish it wasn't. It means the ruin of us if we can't run it down, that's all.' That there was no denying. What could not, indeed, be said of a pair of detectives who, within fifteen minutes, allowed two thefts and a killing to happen, under their noses, and within calling distance? Without more ado, I took up the note. It was written in a firm hand, and read, "'Dear Larry,' I am sorry to have to do it, but... There it stopped short, not as if the writer were startled, I thought, but rather as if he had paused to form the next phrase, which was never now to be set down. Well, said Kemp, that settles it, but the poor fellow certainly made a thorough job of it. The poor fellow, I repeated, absolutely at sea. Sure, suicide, of course. What else could it be? However, all that comes later. There's other work for us to do just now. Let me look at the time. It's 3.25. Make a mental note of that, please, Miss Baird. We've been here almost ten minutes, I guess. Come on. At once he hurried me out, nothing loath, into the hall again, and we were immediately knocking at the next door toward the front of the house. Now for the thief, whispered Kemp. But here again there was no answer to his summons. Mr. Fredericks, he appealed. Still no reply. The phenomenon, however, was getting on our nerves by this time and we acted promptly. Kemp tried the door. "'That's locked, too,' he whispered, and without further comment he forced it as he had forced its neighbor. This room was dark, but we soon had a light going, and then gazed about terror-stricken, expecting another horror. Yet there we were disappointed. The bed, save for the turned-down covers, was undisturbed, and there was nothing except two open suitcases to indicate that the room had had a recent occupant. The window, however, was up, and Kemp ran to it and looked out on the porch roof. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'The fellow's gone!' 
This was his room, all right. I can't be mistaken about that. And here's a tough vine running over the porch roof and down a pillar, I remember. That makes a regular ladder. He leaped onto the roof of the piazza and looked down. Yes, he added as he came back, and it's been used for a ladder, too, only a little while ago. I followed him and saw that he was right. The vine was on a trellis, and plainly within sight there were several white splinters which showed that this had been used, only a short time ago, as a means of sudden departure. We crawled back into the deserted room. Yes, I said, looking at the door. That's the way he went. Here's the key on the inside. The key? Why, yes. Why do you ask? Because, by gad, we forgot to look for that in the other room. He dashed away, and I started to follow. But at the threshold of that awful chamber of horrors, I came to a sudden halt. I had stepped on something in the carpeted hallway. Swiftly I stooped down, and by a rare stroke of good fortune, found the article without a moment's pause. It was a key, undoubtedly that to young Deneen's room, and it had been found lying directly outside the door which we had been obliged to force. Why I acted as I did, I don't, even at this calmer moment, pretend to say. The reason, whatever it was, I must leave to the psychologist to fathom. Perhaps it was simply because I so thoroughly despised Kemp that I wanted to put him in the wrong with his cocksureness about a suicide. Perhaps I was merely commercial, and desired to have for my own the credit of solving this mystery, or perhaps, lastly, it was all due to some prophetic glimmer of what the near future held in store. But be that as it may, I deliberately looked up, saw that Kemp's alert back was still turned, and then, hurrying into the room, stooped over and pretended to have discovered that key here on the inside. "'Here it is,' I said, flushing a little, since one of my professional drawbacks in those days was that I was never a good liar, save where my personal interests were directly concerned. "'It must have dropped from the inside when we broke in, you see.' "'That's so,' Kemp replied carelessly, but patently relieved for all that as he fitted the key in the lock. "'And that's enough to settle the matter. I'm glad of it, though, for I was so rattled when I knocked here that I never thought to try the keyhole before we forced the way in. I only attacked the transom. Now for Bromley's room, and then you must stay here while I break the news to the family. That boy must be a sound and quick sleeper.' But the reason why old Deneen's younger son had not been disturbed was more simply explained. His door swung open to the touch, and though the room showed plainly that its occupant had lately been there, Bromley was gone. In the dim light I noticed that a dress coat was lying on the bed, indicating that its owner had probably changed for a dinner jacket after the dance, but beyond that there was no sign of the precocious youth's whereabouts. "'What does this mean?' I wondered. "'Simply, that the boy's gone for a smoke and a stroll through the grounds before turning in,' snorted Kemp, as we made our way back to the death chamber. "'What else?' "'Oh, Miss Baird, there's no use trying to make a mystery about this case. It's as plain as a pikestaff. Young James Deneen believed that his best friend and best man was in love with his best girl. On top of that, he probably suspected that the fellow had stolen those diamonds. You noticed how queer he looked when we told him that they were gone. Well, he went to Frederick's room and accused him. Frederick's denied the theft, but in the heat of the quarrel, probably jeered at Deneen, because Evelyn really loved him. Frederick's, I mean.' and no doubt added that she meant to bolt with him at the last moment, even if she didn't really mean to give in to his desires in that direction, and so disgraced Deneen. Then Deneen, realizing that he'd lost the girl, went to his own room and cut his throat. 
while Fredericks, not knowing this, got away with the diamonds, meaning to return before morning, when he'd hidden them, the same way he'd gone. A very pretty theory, but knowing that single fact about the key on the outside of the dead man's room, I was prepared to lay a neat bet that it was a mistaken one. However, I said nothing. And now, proceeded Kemp, as if he had disposed of all the mystery in the case, I guess I'll have to tell the old man and his wife, and probably phone for the police. Do you mind staying here until they come? I did mind, of course. But what was there to be said to such a question? No, I answered, not in the least. Well, he apologized, they're both tough jobs, but I guess mine's the toughest. I'll have you relieved just as soon as I can. I watched him as he vanished down the corridor, and then leaned against the wall in that quiet chamber, with the light falling full upon that stark figure in the armchair toward which I did not dare to turn my face. I had seen more than one dead man, of course, in my two years of detective work, but I had never yet been alone with one freshly murdered, and one, moreover, with whom I had been talking in life so short a time before. It was the single occasion during all my acquaintance with Kemp that I really hated to part from him. I had a mind to try myself. I wanted to see how long I could stand it. I took out my watch and timed myself, and I stood it for just seven minutes. For that space of time I stood there motionless, listening intently and hearing not a sound. Then the ordeal became unbearable, and with the thought of that bloody thing lying so still just back of me, I felt that I myself should have to cry out, if only to break the stillness. Nobody, I protest, could have put up with it, not even a man, and so at last I slunk out and into Bromley Deneen's room, and crouched down by the far wall. It was only then that I noticed a peculiar odor, faint but certain. I started up to investigate, and then found that I had been kneeling beside an old-fashioned register. The house, as I have said, was by no means a new one, and had none of the conveniences of steam heat or electric light. Instead, it was heated from an ordinary furnace in the cellar. But the present month was June. The weather was really pleasant, and had been so for weeks previous, and, in short, it was now highly unlikely that a fire should have been kept going in that furnace below stairs, at least for any purposes of heating. Yet the odor which assailed my nostrils was plainly that of something burning, and, as plainly, it came from the register just under my nose. Slowly and stealthily I leaned over, and as quietly as might be opened it. There was no room left for doubt. Somebody was burning rags or clothing in the furnace downstairs. End of chapter 7